So we've been uh, doing a series leading up to Easter, uh, and we've been in particular looking at the, the week before the crucifixion of Christ, leading up to what next Sunday will be Palm Sunday, and that's what we will celebrate next Sunday. Today we're going to look at two significant events in the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We're going to look at the cursing of the fig tree and we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple. Jesus demands truth and holiness. And he also demands a devotion that is second to none. In other words, there should be no one or nothing, no thing that we are more devoted to than Jesus. This is because he loves you, because he has given you the grace to be God's child, and because your life is to produce the fruit of his truth, his holiness, and his love. And in his love for you, he has given to you in Christ. God has given to you in Christ the grace to do just that. To walk in his truth, to walk in his holiness, and to walk in his love. Our text today is Mark chapter 11. I'm going to begin in verse 11, and I'm going to go uh, down through verse 21. So as I read, uh, follow along with me. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us and that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts and mold us and shape us, change us and transform us 
that we would be a people conformed to the very image of Christ, that we would be bright and shining witness in this dark world. Father, we ask this for your glory, and we thank you for the grace given to us in Jesus to be your church, to be your witness in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is so much here, and we can't possibly cover it all. I know some of you would like for me to try, but I promise I won't. That was a joke. Uh, the timeline of events detailed by Mark are, are different. So uh, if you read your Bible carefully, you're going to see that the Gospels present these events, all of them do, but they don't present them all the same way. Some critics would use that difference in the presentation or the difference in the timeline as a reason why the Bible is not reliable, but I believe nothing could be further from the truth. So I want to just briefly, I began with verse 11. I could have skipped verse 11, but I think it's really important because this is the only gospel in which uh, makes this observation. And what does verse 11 say? It says, And Jesus went into, the, into Jerusalem and into the temple, and so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Mark presents Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We would call this the triumphal entry, but we also realize that Jesus made more than one entrance into Jerusalem. In the last week of Jesus' life on this earth before his crucifixion, Jesus did not spend the night in Jerusalem. Jesus went into Jerusalem every day, but every day he left Jerusalem and he either stayed on the Mount of Olives or he stayed in Bethany. But Jesus never spent the night in Jerusalem. So sometimes I think we may, we may think when we read about the triumphal entry, Jesus made this entry into Jerusalem and he never left. But yet the scripture clearly tells us, and we're going to see this today, that he went, he left, he came back, he left, he came back. So Mark presents Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the temple late in the day to look around upon his initial entry into Jerusalem as he's making his way there to be, to celebrate the Passover by being our Passover lamb. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this feast. And when he, he returns to Bethany to spend the night, the next morning, Mark presents Jesus and the disciples returning to the city. In Mark, we have a more detailed timeline of events. In Matthew, these events are not presented according to the chronology. Matthew accurately presents the events, but he just talks about the event as a whole. He doesn't break them up in the chronology that's presented here in Mark. Matthew accurately presents Jesus cursing the fig tree, but presents it as an event that occurred without any lapse of time. Here in Mark's gospel, Mark parses out the details of the event according to the chronology of how things transpired. So there's not a contradiction here. Um, the difference between the way the story is presented is not uncommon when you think about how events are retold by different people at different times. So we've all retold stories. We've all recounted events. 
and we all recount them differently. We can recount the very same event with the same details in very different manners. A, a friend of mine who will remain unnamed at this point, very often I hear him encouraging the person telling a story, get to the point, get to the point. And, and some people like to tell stories or recount events and they fill in lots of details in the information. Well, this is what Mark is doing. He's giving us much more detail. Matthew gets to the point of the event, of the cursing of the fig tree. He leaves out some of the detail, but he does not leave out the importance of the event, the important details of the event, and what that event means and why it occurred. So I just, if you carefully read the Bible, you might come across that and say, gee, I wonder why Mark says this and Matthew says this. And I wanted to address that and help you understand that stories are told differently. And so what I believe is the most important part is that the event is consistently presented in the Gospels. Therefore, we can know with assurance that the event happened. So what we want to talk about today is, is not how or when the event happened. We want to talk more about why the event happened. And that's why, that's why all the Gospels record it. And that's the most important thing for us to consider. Verse 12. So let's talk about the cursing of the fig tree. This is the verse I read to the children. Now the next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. A simple observation. After Jesus had looked around the night before at the temple, he left, he went back to Bethany. Now this is the following morning, and as Jesus sets out to return to Jerusalem from Bethany, the scripture says he was hungry. This is early in the morning. Jesus, Jesus is leaving Bethany to Jerusalem, which means he's coming down the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives to make his way into Jerusalem. This is an important detail, and we're going to see why this is important later on. Jesus was hungry. Jesus, the God-man, hungered for food. Like all men, Jesus hungered and required natural food for sustenance. But unlike very many men, Jesus hungered also for spiritual food, for righteousness. In fact, Jesus hungered for righteousness in men. In other words, Jesus hungers for righteousness in you. He hungers for holiness in you, truth in you. Remember, we're not righteous. He is righteous. He counts us righteous. And so the righteousness given to us, accounted to us, is his righteousness. But because he counts us righteous and because he has put his spirit in us and he dwells in us by his spirit, Jesus hungers that we would be people of truth and holiness, that we would walk and live in a manner that demonstrates his nature and his character. Verse 13, and seeing from afar, he's hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, to the tree, let no one eat food, fruit from you ever again, and his disciples heard it. Now, I think this is really an amazing thing. 
There's a lot in these two verses here. When you read the Bible, read the Bible carefully and consider what's being said here. I think there's some things that are quite amazing. Who is Jesus? He is the person of the Trinity by which, through which, and for which all things were created, the Scripture teaches us. So here is the creator of heaven and earth, or we could say it like this, the creator of fig trees is here looking for fruit on a fruitless fig tree. Why was it fruitless? Because it wasn't the season for figs. You think Jesus didn't know that? He created it, I guarantee you, and he created the seasons. So there is a lot of discussion surrounding Jesus cursing the fig tree. If you read commentaries and you read things, there's lots of discussion. And the possible motives behind, why did Jesus curse it? Uh, Mark tells us it was not the season for figs, which makes it even more strange, in my opinion, since Jesus would have certainly known this, since he created fig trees and he created the seasons. The obvious question arises concerning Jesus expecting fruit on a tree when it is not the season. Perhaps Jesus was making an example of a fig tree that he knew, in fact, had no fruit. Now, this is what I believe. I don't think, uh, I think there's lots of discussion about this that is, in my opinion, kind of futile. Uh, In response, Jesus says to the fruitless fig tree, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. So think about this. Jesus, the word made flesh, speaks words to a tree he created. Not because the tree can speak back, but because Jesus created and Jesus commands all things by his word. That was true then. That is true now. It is true eternally. Jesus knows very well this tree is fruitless because it is not the season for figs. He also knows that this tree represents something much greater than a source of food for a hungry rabbi. In other words, this fig tree, this leafy fig tree, so if we know something about seasons, this is Passover. So this coming Friday is what we call Good Friday, but it is actually Passover on the Jewish calendar. So our Good Friday this year coincides with Passover on the Jewish calendar. So we could think about it this way. At the time Jesus is cursing the fig tree, it is literally about this time of year some 2,000 years ago. We're literally about the same days out of Passover, as Jesus was when he cursed the fig tree. And if you look at fig trees now, and I've got some in my yard, what's happening to these fig trees? They're just leafing out. And there is no fruit on them because this is not the season for figs. But the Bible gives us some detail about this tree, that it was very leafy. So whether it was an early spring or this tree just leafed out earlier than the other trees, I've got trees in my yard that have not leafed out yet. I've got trees in my yard that are fully leafed out. 
So trees leaf out at different times, even trees of the same variety or the same kind. So there was something going on here more than just a hungry rabbi who was disappointed because he couldn't get a fig. He speaks to this tree, he curses this tree, he commands this tree with his words. This tree represents a nation and its leaders who have no fruit for the spiritual sustenance of a people literally starving for it. The hungry throngs followed Jesus. We see the accounts of him feeding thousands miraculously. But those throngs were not just hungry physically, they were hungry spiritually. They were hungry for the promise of God's Messiah. They were hungry for freedom and deliverance from their oppressors. They were hungry for the kingdom of David to once again be restored, and with it, the glory of Israel. They were hungry, and in their hunger, they cried out to Jesus. And Jesus, too, was hungry for them in their spiritual famine. Jesus was discerning their true need. He knew the true and desperate condition they were in, just as he knows ours today. Jesus knows the true need of his people then and now. Jesus does not heal our wounds lightly. I want you to hear this, church. And thank God he does not. He does not only soothe our pain, but he brings true healing and true deliverance. Not in the way Israel sought it in his day, and not in the way that we often think it should come in our day. But in the only way possible, and that is through the cross. They hungered for a king who would conquer their enemies, set them free, and then rule them. And Jesus did all of that, but not in the way they looked for it to happen. Jesus, in fact, followed the most unlikely and unexpected path to victory through the cross. Jesus said to the fruitless fig tree, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. From Mark's account, nothing much was thought about what Jesus said at that time. Because Jesus said it to the fig tree. And in Mark's account, they keep walking on to Jerusalem. The disciples who heard him may have thought Jesus was talking to himself. He was hungry, so perhaps he was expressing disappointment about the lack of fruit. He was no doubt expressing his disappointment, but it was not at the fig tree. It was at the nation and the people and their leaders Because there was hunger, real hunger, but there was no fruit. Jesus promises to fill those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6, from his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these words, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The 400 years leading up to the advent of Jesus were called by the Jews the the 400 years of silence. There was no prophetic word from the Lord. Malachi was the last prophet. And God allowed a hunger to build for 400 years in his people. And when Jesus 
was born, and when Jesus entered into his earthly ministry, they were famished. And God meant it to be that way. And the promise was, and this is why Jesus said this to the people, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Jesus was sent to fill their hunger and their thirst for righteousness. And Jesus is here today for us and to fill us in our thirst and our hunger for righteousness. Luke 153 He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Those who know their true hunger shall be filled. Those who think themselves full says they shall be sent away empty. In Mark's narrative, Jesus cursed the fig tree that morning, but the full effect was not realized until the following morning. We'll keep moving with Jesus and his disciples into Jerusalem and the temple and the significant event that followed. So in Mark's gospel, he curses a tree. The disciples heard it, and they keep moving. And they keep moving right to the cleansing of the temple. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Now, I'm not sure how we often in our minds envision this event. I think sometimes we envision in our minds maybe a large room where Jesus goes into and he shoes everybody out. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. If you look at models of Herod's temple. So this is the second temple. This is the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt from the captivity in, in uh, Babylon. But for 46 years, Herod built this complex and made it massive. And the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple called the court of the Gentiles, is where this transpired. And we're talking about acres of land. So when Jesus is doing this, he is working and moving in an area that is acres big. It's the entire outer court. So when you walk into the beautiful gate and you walk into the temple, you walk into the outer court. It's massive. This is the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the nations could come into the temple in this court, but they could go no further. They still find inscribed on the stones of the temple the the death threats. If any goyim, if any Gentile goes beyond this point, he will be killed. He is subject to, to death, execution. But God designed that outer court for the nations. And so I want you to realize this is this is massive. So Gentiles, non-Jews, could not enter the temple itself, but only the large outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And this area was for all people, but especially those of other nations who came to pray and to worship the, the God of the Jews, the Hebrew God, the true and living God. Since the Gentiles were regarded as unclean. Now, remember that temple was built 400 years before it Construction began. We just went through the book of Haggai. 
it was began in those centuries before the birth of Christ. And here we are now, let's just say 500 years later. And that temple had been in operation, sacrifices offered every day since its completion. So since the completion of the second temple for every day, every morning, every afternoon, at 9 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, plus all the sacrifices and all the offerings that all the people brought, this has been going on for centuries, literally. Since the Gentiles were regarded as unclean by the Jews... The high priest allowed the court of the Gentiles to be used for the exchange of currency and the selling of animals. Well, why would they be exchanging money and selling animals there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Money was changed because the temple tax had to be paid in the so-called shekel of the sanctuary. So, you know, if, if dollars are the currency that they accept, then you can't bring your Deutschmark, you can't bring your yen, you can't bring your pesos... You've got to convert your currency into dollars to pay your temple tax. Or here it was the half shekel of the sanctuary, or the shekel of the sanctuary. It was in this large outer court that pilgrims coming from any distance, three times a year, pilgrims, the Jews, would come and appear before the Lord and celebrate the feast of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And if they came any distance, they couldn't bring their animals with them so enterprising Jews realize, we'll just have animals here for them to buy when they get here. Then they don't have to bring their animals hundreds of miles uh, from hundreds of miles away. So the animals were necessary for the sacrifice and offerings that they would present to the Lord. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, listen to this, this is amazing. There was a need for an estimated... 255,600 lambs, just lambs, nothing else, just lambs, at Passover in A.D. 66. Now, you think about 250,000 lambs. You're not going to put them all in a room like this. Plus, everything it took to feed them, water them, care for them. And that's not counting all the other animals and all the other things that were present there. So this gives you an idea of the scale of operation that Jesus disrupted that day. Jesus warned about competing loyalties. This is what was happening in the temple. There were competing loyalties and God demanded and God still demands complete loyalty to him. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, the words of Jesus here, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word that simply means riches, money, or wealth. All of this commerce provided a great source of income for the city of Jerusalem and its leaders. Just as other temples, this was common in the ancient world, temples were also banks. So just as other temples in the ancient world, the temple in Jerusalem functioned as a bank. So there is explicit references to banking activities in the temple. This is found in the intertestamental book of 2 Maccabees, one of the books written in that 400 years of silence. So history was still taking place 
uh, history was still being recorded. In the book of 2 Maccabees, speaks specifically about the temple being this bank and banking operations going on there. So if you're selling 255,000 lambs and you're exchanging money for the sale of those animals, what are you going to do with all that money? Uh, you're not going to just be willy-nilly with it. We're talking about a large sum of, of money. And so the bank, uh, the temple became a bank as well. So you can imagine problems and abuses developed and making money or serving mammon became more important than worship and service to God. This was the reason Jesus cleansed the temple. And when he did, he challenged the entire banking system of Jerusalem. This not only interfered with the operations of the temple bank and the bedrock of the Judean economy, but he, in doing this, it was seen by some that Jesus was actually making a claim to kingship. I think he actually was, because he, he is the king. It's exactly who he was. And the king had come back to his house, and his house was in disarray. And what he had set aside and dedicated as sacred for the nations to come and worship and pray had been turned into a massive market. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with providing that service to worshipers, but it had become much more than that. It had become a source of mammon. And the mammon was more important than the worship. Verse 17, what did Jesus do? He taught. He taught the people. He drove out the money changers. He overturned the, the table with doves. The doves were there because people who couldn't afford to buy a, a, a lamb or a goat or a bull... Because of their poverty, God allowed them to offer a dove. So what that tells us is they were abusing and taking advantage of the least or the most vulnerable of the population. Verse 17, then Jesus taught, saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus is quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to the words of Isaiah concerning the nations worshiping God. Isaiah 56, 6 and 8 through 8. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. It's a promise to all the nations, to all peoples, everywhere, in all times. That the true and living God is a God to all people. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, God so loved the world that he, that he sent his only begotten son. God so loved Jew and Gentile. God loved all the nations. 
and sent his son to save those among all the nations. The cleansing of the temple was the beginning of the restoration of all things to their proper order. The temple was never meant to be the end goal. It had become this massive complex built out by the wicked Herod. Like the tabernacle before it, the temple was only a foreshadowing of the true temple and the presence of God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. God destroyed that temple in 70 AD, just less than four decades after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He destroyed that temple in 70 AD because its purpose had been fulfilled. And its continued presence created a distraction for the Jews who loved and honored the temple more than the Lord and the God of the temple. Its final purpose was to reveal God's righteous judgment upon those who rejected Christ because they loved and served the mammon of the temple more than the Lord of the temple. And instead of a house of prayer for all nations, it had become a den of thieves. Jesus taught the people what his father's house was to truly be, not what the corrupt scribes and chief priests had turned it into. You can imagine this did not go over well with those in power, those who were profiting most from the commerce of the temple. When we begin to understand exactly what Jesus was disrupting, you begin to understand why it was necessary for Jesus to die. Because these people who had invested centuries in power structures and put themselves in places of authority and power to gain and to reap the wealth of the corruption taking place there would not allow some obscure rabbi who had never even been to rabbi seminary come and disrupt their entire operation that they had built for centuries. Verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. The scribes and the chief priests feared Jesus. They feared Jesus because all the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, they feared Jesus because he taught the truth. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, the gospel to the people. And this good news was setting people free from the bondage placed on them by the very scribes, by the very chief priests who sought to kill Jesus. They sought to kill him because he threatened their control over the people and over their source of wealth and power. And Jesus told the people, John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He told them that just several months before this incident right here. With the knowledge of the truth, the people could not be held captive or controlled by lies any longer. And the same is true for us today. There is a reason why the lie is so prolific. There is a reason why the lie is foisted upon us from every direction in every way possible. You will be held captive by the lie if you will not embrace the truth. And all who can be held captive by the lie will be controlled by those who perpetrate it. This is the purpose of the lie, to hold captive and to control those who reject the truth. Jesus is the truth. 
He has come to set the captives free, free from sin, free from the lie, and free to love and to serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. You are free to do that by God's grace and by his grace alone. And the truth is hated by those who use the lie for its power and control over others because the truth breaks the power and the control the lie has, and it makes those who receive the truth free. This is the power of the truth. You must never, hear me, church, you must never be afraid to speak the truth, even to those you love most dearly, especially to those you love most dearly. Because if you think being nice to them, if you think protecting their feelings, if you think not saying the hard things is going to save them, it will not. The only thing that can save them and the only thing that can set them free is the truth. This is the power of the truth. This is why we must speak it and speak it in love. When I say in love, meaning when we speak the truth, we are truly loving people. We're not loving them when we withhold the truth. Verse 19, I'm going to finish with these three verses. So, right there, Jesus is in the temple. He's cleansed it. He's driven everyone out. He's stopped the commerce. And now the people, imagine, thousands of people have gathered to Jesus in the outer court. The, the crowds have come, and they can do no more business. There's no more money changing. There's no more buying and selling of animals. Jesus has the attention of the crowd, and there's no one carrying wares through. The people have gathered to him, and now he is teaching them. And guess who's watching from the sidelines and fuming and scheming? The scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 19, when evening had come, when he finished, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. This phrase, when evening had come, informs us of what time of day this is. This is at sunset. It's not night yet, but the day is mostly spent and night is fast approaching. After Jesus has spent from early morning until late in the day at the evening, he leaves Jerusalem, and now the next morning he's coming back, and his disciples see the fig tree. Now, I want to go back to Jesus leaving Jerusalem, because this is important. You might ask, well, why didn't they see it if it withered immediately? Why didn't they see it the first day? So this phrase, when evening had come, helps us understand what's happening here. It's not dark, but the sun is setting and night's fast approaching. It's evening and Jesus and his disciples leave the temple, leave the city, and they're making their way up the east side of the Mount of Olives. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. And so the sun has already gone down over the Mount of Olives and the shadows now are deepening on the eastern side of the mountain. So if you can imagine among all of the fig orchards and all the olive orchards and all the tree, it was a very, it was a wooded area. In all of that, the shadows were deepening. It was, it was basically maybe not dark as in dark of the night, but there was, the trees were cloaked in shadow. So they're walking, trying to get to Bethany before it gets too late, and they don't, 
see the fig tree because the fig tree is in the darkness of the shadow because the sun has gone down over the Mount of Olives. But when they come back the next morning from Bethany, now they're going down the Mount of Olives. They're descending to go through the Kidron Valley and then back up into Jerusalem. And as they're descending the Mount of Olives on the eastern side in the early morning, guess what's shining bright with the sun rising in the east? There is the sunlight. And now all these trees are seen in the light, the bright light of the sun. And as they passed, just as they had the previous morning, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered the words that Jesus spoke to the tree. Now he's seeing the result of the curse that Jesus spoke over it. There is no needed scientific explanation. This is a miracle. Some would say, well, how could someone curse a tree and it dry up immediately from the roots? Well, I don't know. How did God create everything from nothing? How did God split the Red Sea? How did God do anything miraculous? This is a miracle. Jesus simply spoke to the tree as he passed by, and it withered immediately. And it was seen the next morning, and it was then the miracle was known by his disciples. In light of the events of the previous day, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, I want to discuss the motives for these actions, for I believe they are absolutely related. Last week, we discussed the village of Beth Fage, the house of unripe figs. And that in this village, it was considered part of Jerusalem, even though it was outside of Jerusalem. And it was considered part of Jerusalem because at Beth Fage, the great Sanhedrin had a chamber where they would meet. And it had to be part of Jerusalem. The great Sanhedrin, this symbolic, um, this fig tree was symbolic of this in the house of unripe figs. And it was this group of leaders that would ultimately condemn Jesus to death. There's little doubt that there is much more to Jesus cursing the fig tree than being simply hungry. The fig tree represented the nation of Israel and the power structures in place at that time. The great Sanhedrin and its leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, the very ones who would see Jesus crucified to preserve their own power and their own wealth, Destroy the truth and the lie with its power will remain, was their thought. But they were wrong. I want you to understand that the truth always prevails. We are inundated with the lie so much. We're saturated with it. We begin to believe that the truth will never prevail. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but... Yeah, I know what God said, but have you read the news? Have you seen the... No, forget that. Pray about the news. Pray about world events. But know that the truth always prevails. The problem for those who love the lies is that you cannot destroy the truth. The truth will always prevail, if not sooner, than later. The truth always makes us free, if not one way... Then another. Somebody said to me once, 
during the lockdown? What if they, what if they came in and they threatened you at gunpoint? I said, well, that's not going to happen here yet. But what if they did? What is the worst thing they could do? Shoot me? Kill me? Send me to Jesus? Set me free from my type 2 diabetes? <laughs> The truth will always make us free one way or another. Jesus is the truth that will not nor cannot go away. Christ is the original inconvenient truth for the world, not climate change, Al Gore. You must not be timid about making Christ and the truth known. The cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple were both signs to a generation that was blind with its own lust for power, wealth, and control. If the signs were too obscure, Jesus foretold in great detail. It's in the Gospels. What would come upon that generation and, and, and those who rejected him. And that power and wealth that they loved so much was coming to a destructive end. Their beloved temple and city that had so enriched and empowered them would be laid waste under the destruction of the Roman army in less than 40 years from the time Jesus stood overlooking Jerusalem and the temple and wept and lamented. It's recorded for us in, in uh, Luke chapter 19. In less than 40 years from that time, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. What God had said would come to pass, did come to pass. His word was fulfilled. The city was laid siege and the temple was destroyed. The fig tree and the temple were cursed and cleansed as a sign of God's judgment upon sin and his demand for holiness. The fire of God's wrath poured out in righteous judgment brought the fulfillment of the curse and it brought the cleansing that was needed for the temple, and it revealed for us the true temple, the third temple, the real eternal temple, who is the Lamb, the Lord, Jesus Christ. These signs that foretold these events and the word of the Lord came to pass. If you profess to be a follower of Christ, you must live accordingly. You must not be afraid to speak the truth. Jesus was not. In love, Jesus spoke the truth. He lived the truth. He is the truth. You are being assailed with the lie every day. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth that will make you free. Anything else you place your trust in will sooner or later fail. But he can never fail. Christian, rejoice, for Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. The curse and the cleansing was required because of the state of affairs and the state of the hearts of the people. We have the same facing us, I believe, today. We can either, we can either experience a curse as God judges a rebellious nation, or we can humble ourselves before the Lord and pray that God would bring a cleansing. We, as God's people, have been delivered from the curse. 
curse doesn't belong to us. But we live in a nation as redeemed people that could very well experience a heavier hand of God's judgment than is already upon us. And it has been given to us, the church, the power to avert that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. God will hear from heaven. He'll heal us and he'll, he'll forgive us and he'll heal our land. In Christ, you are called holy. You are to be set apart for the Lord, not this world. You are to be no longer conformed to this world with its unholy lie, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God made manifest in you through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The world would see Christ in you. That is what God, that is what Christ is hungry for, that the world would see Christ in you. The hope of glory. He is our hope. He is our only hope. Look to him, trust in him, and rejoice for Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, bless our food next door. We thank you for every good and perfect gift that you give to us. Father, let it be nourishment to our bodies. Lord, the gifts that are given on behalf of our missionaries, take those and multiply them. Let them be blessings to our missionaries and their families and the people that they serve in the various lands. Lord, Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your abundance. We are thankful people. Father, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Lord be with you.